from all over the globe confirming it as true. To say that the world is in a state of shock this morning would be to understate the situation. The event seems to have taken place at the same time all over the world just about 25 minutes ago. Suddenly and without warning, literally thousands, perhaps millions of people just disappeared. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. There's no time to change your mind. How could you have been so blind? All right. Okay, so the fact that you're not wigging out about that video footage is proof that you were not a Christian in the 70s and the 80s. <clears throat> because all the rest of us had to sit through every lock-in and every youth group meeting and watch that movie called A Thief in the Night. It was, it was, uh, it was produced in 1972. And when I tell you it was the creepiest movie ever produced for Christian people, it, I'm telling you the truth. And the reason why is, first off, the production uh, level had some desire um, left, but um, <laughs> when the whole premise of the movie is you've been left behind. Jesus has come back in the night, and you weren't ready. You weren't a good enough Christian, and so the whole theme that every youth pastor, every young adult meeting was that you better get right, you better get right, you better get right. Well, you talk about a creepy season to live in, because if you woke up and mom went to the grocery store or something, and you're yelling out, Mom! And she's not there. You're like, I've been left behind. And you hear that song, you've been left behind, playing in the back of your mind. And so it's from that, as we're going into this series about end times, that I thought, I'm going to make you pay for what I had to pay for back in the day. No, I'm just kidding. I wanted just you to have an imagery of kind of where Christianity was in the 70s and 80s, where we literally, uh, or the church in the United States, let's say it like that, where we literally were um, so enamored and enthralled with the fact that Jesus was coming back. In fact, in 1988, a man wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. Well, when he didn't come back in 1988, the guy reworked the book and said, wait, I missed it according to the Jewish calendar. He's coming back in 89. And so, you know, at the, I, I was in the midst of finishing up school and going to college, and our church community was convinced that Jesus was coming back any moment. And so we all quit everything and basically went into Bible school so that we could go forward and bring in the harvest before Jesus came back. And that really was our premise. And this, past, this concept, a thief in the night, we find it in multiple places in the New Testament. And so we are talking about the end times in this series, but what we're actually doing is we're not getting so caught up in everyone's, um, you know, subjective understanding of the occurrences of events that are going to happen in the end times, but we're actually trying to look at what, in those passages of Scripture, what was Jesus trying to tell us? What was he saying to us about now, about who we are right now? Not only was he, what was he saying to his disciples in Matthew 24, but what was he saying to the Thessalonians through the Apostle Paul? And so that's what we've been looking at. And give you a couple of thoughts here. Uh, there are a, one out of every 30 verses in the Bible, excuse me, in the New Testament, actually reference some type of return of Jesus. Uh, 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament actually talk about, to some level, about the end of time and the return of Jesus Christ. But there are four major passages in the New Testament that actually cover these end time thought processes. We find it first and foremost in Matthew chapter 24, bleeds on over into Matthew 25 as well. We find it in the book First and Second Thessalonians and the Thessalonian books. We find it as well in the book of First and Second Peter and the book of Revelation, which for any of you guys that weren't saved, I hope that you never did do meth or anything and then read the book of Revelation because you're gonna have, we're going to have a lot of deliverance parties with you because the book of Revelation as an apocalyptic writing in and of itself uh, is pretty creepy to try to figure out what it's talking about. And as we dive into the series, one of the premises that we're working from is that none of these passages, these are the four major passages, none of these passages actually are definitive uh, as a roadmap as to exactly what's going to happen in the end times. They're not, it's not definitive. Nowhere in the book of Matthew does Jesus say, now listen guys, what's going to happen? First and foremost, number one, the church age is going to come to a close and then I'm going to rapture you all away. Then what's going to happen? There's going to be this seven year millennial season, uh, tribulation piece and half and three and a half years of this, three and a half years of this. Then this is going to happen. Then this is going to happen. Not, and none of the books do you have that. What you have is basically subjective pieces put in there. And the reason why is because in each one of these, if you go back and read these passages, 
actually, Jesus, the Apostle Paul, John the Revelator, they're actually saying to the church right then and there, to the people right there, listen, there is something coming, but this is what you need to know about right now. There, there's something coming. I'm not going to get into all that. I'm not going to give you all the details. But this coming, and this is this, some things going to happen. But right now, this is what you need to know about your life. And this is where all these eschatology teachers and these guys that are making millions of dollars off of selling their books to you about, you know, well, the blood moon, something such, and means a such and sucher, and the Antichrist, since it wasn't Obama, then it now must be, you know, president. Uh, you know, it, it, all the different ones that they've gone through. And at the end of the day, those passages of Scripture are not a a, a, a definitive layout of what the end times are going to look like. They're actually just references in the midst of a conversation, in the midst of a conversation about what you and I need to be doing right now with our lives. And so when we looked at the passage last week in the book of Matthew, we recognize that Jesus is talking about, listen, no one knows the day or the time. No one really knows those things. There'll be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines. And so he laid out how we would know it was starting, but he didn't give a definitive roadmap. And so what we have in this hour are four major concepts of what the end times will look like. Now, let me just lay out for you. So most everybody looks through Scripture, and they see that there is some type of rapture, some type of taking away. The Bible calls it that. It doesn't really call it a rapture. That the, the, the true saints, that Jesus will call them up out of, off the earth. And, and then most everyone believes that there is, as they read Scripture, that there's going to be a, a great tribulation, a seven-year period, as the uh, uh, Apostle John laid out. And, and, and that it'll be broken into three, two parts, three, uh, three and a half years and three and a half years. And then in that process that God's going to pour out his wrath on the earth in some type of fashion or form. And then, then they all agree that, you know, that there's going to be a millennial reign, that between the tribulation and the millennial reign, Jesus will come back, there'll be the battle of Armageddon, and, uh, and Jesus will win that war, obviously, and then there'll be a thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth, and then at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be unlocked from, from, the, from the, you know, the jail that he's been in, he'll wreak some more havoc, and then there'll just be an end, and it'll all be over, and there'll be the great judgment, and then, you know, forever and ever and ever, those of us who are believers will live with Jesus. Jesus in heaven forever. And so that's pretty much the kind of the pieces. Now in that, there's the Antichrist, which is, uh, which is a man that will be not only killed, but raised from the dead. And in, in that tribulation period, will be reigning and ruling and wreaking havoc and all this kind of stuff. There's the mark of the beast you've heard people talk about, 666. Is it going to be a literal mark, you know, stamped on our hand or on our forehead? Will it just be a system of operations that you can't get food and you can't do business unless you, uh, unless you uh, embrace this system? Is it, just, is it just, you know, ethereal thinking and that's just the way the spirit of wickedness is going to be on the earth? And there's all this debate back and forth. So there are four, in this hour right now, kind of four major concepts on all these little pieces. And, uh, and let me just kind of lay them out for you for a second. Uh, first and foremost, we'll look at the post-trib guys, the guys that believe a post-trib pre-millennial. So what these guys believe is that, yes, uh, you know, there will be a great tribulation for, for seven years. But we as Christians, we won't be extracted before the tribulation. We'll actually go through the tribulation. And their belief system is that at the end of the tribulation, then Jesus will rapture us or take us away after the tribulation. They base that on how uh, uh, Jesus talks about persecution that will come. They base that on you know, some of the way they read the apocalyptic writing of the, of the book of Revelations. And they would say that we're going to go through it. And they would say that, yes, but God will protect us as the true believers. We will be encapsulated, kind of like Noah was encapsulated later in the ark, and though everyone else was drowning, he and his family were saved. They, they would be called themselves post-trib. The reason why they call that is because the taking away will happen after the tribulation, before the thousand-year reign. And so then the second kind of popular belief system is pre-trib or pre-millennialism. Uh, pre now, the pre-tribs, guys, are they, and they make up the majority of way most kind of, they call it the, the classic uh, view of the end times, and you see, like Southern Baptists believe pre-trib pr predominantly uh, as an organization. The Assemblies of God, some of the larger uh, Christian organizations, uh, find themselves more in a pre-trib. Uh, and what they believe is there's a tribulation coming, but right as we get right up to it starting, that Jesus will extract us that are true believers. We'll meet Him in the air. Then we will have our time during the tribulation with Him, and then Jesus will come back for the Battle of Armageddon, and uh, and He will destroy everybody. We'll come back with Him, but He'll do all the 
destruction before we ever even make it to the, to the, to the uh, earth. And then he'll set up his millennial 1,000-year reign, and we will be co-leading with him. And for those of us believing that, like for me, example, I'm believing that I get to have Hawaii. I'd like to be the governor of Hawaii during that millennial reign. That's, I, I feel like after being in Texas all these years, I, I deserve something. And so anyway, then the, the third big popular viewpoint is post-millennial. And what they, what they believe is um, that we will go through all of the tribulation, we'll go through all the millennial, and all, and then all Christians, and then the only taken away is the end. At the end of, at the end of the age, that's when we're all taken away. And then there's the quality of separation of sheep from the goat that happens at the great uh, judgment of, of, of the Father. And so they believe that because their belief system is that, that God has actually put his spirit inside of us, and that the tribulation, the millennial reign, that we will set up God's kingdom on the earth. And, uh, and they even move into, uh, some of them, post-millennials, actually move into a little bit of, um, you know, believing that we will dominate the earth. And their belief system is this, is that revival will come to the world, to the place where all, all the world becomes Christian. And so for a thousand years, all the world will be Christian because all the Christians, because Jesus lives inside of us, the Spirit of the Lord is inside of us, will, will literally set up Jesus' millennial reign. But we will be the ones to usher that in as a result of our relationship with the living God. And so that's why they're challenging you uh, to, to get involved in, in politics and, and get involved in business and that kind of thing. Because they feel like if, if the Christians will get involved in all these pieces, what will happen is because of the nature of Christ inside of us, it will win out. Everyone who's around will actually become Christian. And as a result, they'll have a thousand-year reign of perfection because the Christians have basically dominated or taken over the world. And, and, and so they move into a little bit of dominionism, uh, and so we'll stay away from that. All right, and the last one is amillennialism, and they believe the whole thing is symbolic. It's all symbolic, uh, you know, that those things are symbolic. They're not actually physical things that are going to happen, that they're happening kind of now. And uh, at, the, at the end, there's just going to be an end. Jesus will take us all up. He'll separate sheep from the goat. Then we'll have the, the second judgment of Christ for believers and how we lived according to what he told us to live. But there'll just be that whole thing, and it'll happen in one big move. And so the reason why I bring these out is because at the end of the day, these are wonderful places of discussion, and it's fun. But at the end of the day, Jesus doesn't lay out any of this. In specific order, in none of the scriptures. There's so so I I have people that I respect more than anybody else that that believe different than the way I see it, and and I respect them for it. There are people in this congregation that are smarter than me when it comes to some of these things, and they have studied and they see things and they take this prophecy to mean this, and that is all awesome and wonderful and true. But at the end of the day, in none of these passages did he line it out one two three four five. You say, why didn't he do that? Because that wasn't the goal in any of these passages. In all these passages, he was just teaching us how we're supposed to live in this moment, knowing what's coming. That's what this whole thing is about. And so I would just say this, and uh, when it comes to me, people, you know, ask me, well, Pastor, how do you see it? Well, first and foremost, I, I, I probably would fall in the camp that was, would be considered a pre-wrath. And what that means is, I know for a fact, and we'll study that here today, that he will not pour out his wrath on us as believers, because his word says it. And so if that means that the tribulation is not a real tribulation, it's just persecution. I know we'll be persecuted because Jesus said we would. He said we'd be persecuted. But what I do know is that God will not pour out his wrath on us as believers. So am I extracted middle of the tribulation? Am I extracted before the tribulation? I don't really care. All I know is I got a solid relationship with the living God, and he won't pour out his wrath on me or on mine. Are you with me? So that's where I land the whole thing. The rest of it's fun to talk about, but what we wanted to do today and in this series is we actually want to learn what was being said to us, the lessons being taught us in the midst of this discussion. So in Matthew chapter 24, what we found is Jesus talking about, listen, they asked him, how will we know you're going to come back? How are we going to know the end of the world is here? And he goes, listen, nobody knows the time of the season. He says, but there'll be wars. You can tell because of birth pains. He said, there'll be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines. All these things are going to happen. And then he went into teaching us three major lessons. And these are the lessons that we brought out last week. Just review them for a second. The first thing that he told us that, that we needed to be doing and this whole, we put that on screen for him. The first thing we, he told him was that let no one deceive you. He said, listen, there's going to be such false prophecy and such false teaching. This thing is coming. It's going, to be, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be horrible. But let me just say something to you. False prophets and false teachers will try to deceive even the elect. Don't let anybody deceive you. 
Know your word, know your savior. Don't let anybody confuse you or deceive you. The second life lesson that he gave us in the midst of that, it was, listen, it's coming, it's gonna happen. In fact, the, the spirit of the antichrist is in the world today. So you have to reject apathy. Do not become apathetic. Keep that relationship hot and warm and on fire. Do not become apathetic. Don't start playing with sin again. Don't go back to that old way of living and become apathetic like so many people do after the relationship has been established for so many years. They lose, they, they lose uh, passion and they become apathetic. And the third thing that he told us to do, which was his whole thing, was keep watch. Keep watch. Stay waiting, longing for the return of the Savior. Keep that as your attitude. He said, keep watch. That was his big teaching. It's going to happen. These things are going to come. And you know, some will be like this and have a little bit of this. And he tells us little bitty pieces. He doesn't say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. He doesn't do that. Why? Because that's not the, that's not the focus. The focus is us. The focus is us being ready for that, that, the return of the Lord. The focus is us. Don't, don't become apathetic. He's focusing on us. Listen, don't let anybody deceive you. Don't let, he, he's not focusing on the details of what's going to happen. He's focusing on us and who we're to become and how we're supposed to live. With that being said, in today, part two, we're going to look at the passage in the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. If, our key scripture for this passage is found in First Thessalonians chapter five, verse four through five. Remember, if you're new to us, every week I give you a key passage. Uh, that kind of summarizes the message, or at least uh, alludes to the message. And that way, if, you'll, if you don't do anything else in the service, but if you'll remember one scripture a week in 52 weeks of being in church with us, you'll know more scripture than most American Christians, all right? So here's our, here's our key one for today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4 through 5. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. Somebody say amen. amen. This day is not going to surprise us because we're not living in darkness. You are all sons of the light, and sons of the day. That ought to make you rejoice a little bit, that you are sons and daughters of the light and of the day. We're not living in darkness, so we won't be caught by surprise. Now, in this passage of Thessalonians, in this moment, i got to give you a little bit of backdrop. So the Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 17, he's going around and he's doing missionary journeys. He does one real successful, and then he does a second one. First one he does with Barnabas, and the second one he does with Silas. And so they go from city to city and town to town, just kind of preaching, starting churches. Whatever God loves, does, however he leads them, they just go from city to city. And, and when God is done with that city, he sends them to another city. It'd be like if you got really excited about Jesus and you decided, you know what? Me and my nephew, we're going to go over to Amarillo, and we're going to start something for Jesus. And you roll up into Amarillo, man, you get an apartment, and you guys get jobs, and then everyone at work, you start telling them, listen, you do understand. There's an incoming. You do know that there is the living Savior. Jesus Christ was the Messiah. No, I don't know anything. Come over to our apartment, man. We won't tell you about this after work. We'll, pre- we'll pray with you. We'll help you. And you start, you start building relationships. And Paul does this for about a month in Thessalonica. And in that, people get saved. They start a church. It's magnificent. But in the process of starting this church, there are some leftover Jews from the last city they were at who had gotten ticked off at Paul and Silas. And the reason why they got ticked off about them is because they're saying that Jesus was the Messiah. And these other Jews don't believe that. And they were like, the, the Messiah hadn't come. That, Jesus, he's not the Messiah. And so they saw Christianity as a cult. And so they thought it was their duty once they found out that, that Paul and, and, and Silas had gone to, to Thessalonica. They thought it was their duty to go over there and fix that thing. So they, they came and they rallied all the Jews in that city. Hey, you know there's a cult in your, in your apartment complex, right? You know that, right? You know, they're sitting around telling people that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they start stirring up stuff. Then not only that, what happened was, because Thessalonica was about 200,000 people in this time, they began to stir up all the Gentile people. All the people who didn't even believe in the Jewish ways or weren't, you know, any kind of law of Moses. But they had served the gods of Rome. And in fact, Rome, in this era, was so strong and so powerful that they saw Caesar as a god. And they demanded loyalty. In fact, Rome said... To everyone that there were subjects that were their subjects of Rome, that that Rome, the, the entity of Rome and the gods that Rome served are the gods that everyone will serve, no matter what your backdrop is. They let the Jews have their little bit of God, Jehovah God stuff, but everyone had to give to Caesar what was Caesar. And so what they begin to do is stir up everybody else and say, "Listen, they're they're talking about there, there's another God outside of outside of Caesar. There's, he's he's calling them to to dis." connect their, their loyalty to Rome and to Caesar and connect to this guy named Jesus. And so he start, they, so now all the, all the Gentiles are all ticked off about it. And they got so mad and so began to persecute and decided they were going to kill Paul and Silas that Paul and Silas literally had to flee in the night. 
And so they left this church, this group of people. I don't know if it was 20, 30, 100. I don't know what it was. We don't know. But there was a group of people that had accepted Jesus and said, yes, this is the way, and given their life in full commitment to the Lord. So months, weeks, whatever goes by, and Timothy goes to the city to check on Paul, sends him to check on the church. And comes back and he tells Paul, you're not going to believe it. You're not going to believe it. They still are loving God. They're under lots of persecution. Families are turning on each other. People, uh, people in the community go, yeah, yeah, there's those guys in a cult. But they are faithful to God. Paul can't believe it. So he writes 1 Thessalonians in response. And 1 Thessalonians opens with, I can't believe your faith. Well done. I'm so proud of you guys. Oh, it broke my heart that we had to flee. And I didn't know if you'd still be going after Jesus, but you made me so proud. And listen, the persecution that you're going through, don't worry about it. Because Jesus will return. He will return. And everything that you've been standing for will be made right. And all those who've done wrong against you, he will make. There is a judgment to come for them who've rejected the living Savior. There's a return going to happen. And as he's writing this and he sends that letter over to him, the expectation would be to encourage him. He doesn't go into, and then there'll be an antichrist. And then there'll be a 666 number. And then, and then they, and, and it looks like helicopters, Apache helicopters shooting everybody. He doesn't get in all that. He's just trying to encourage them that in the midst of your persecution, there is a day coming. Hold strong. Don't give up. There's a day coming where the Savior will return. And he will, he will make everyone give an account for what they've done and how they've lived. And because you've lived faithful, there will be great reward for you. And for those who've hurt you and harmed you, they will be, they will be rewarded as well. They will find the judgment of God. Not only that, but don't worry about this because there's a day coming where you'll be extracted out of all of this. Don't worry about it. It's coming. And that's all he writes to them. Well, then what happens and we've realized but when we get into Second Thessalonians that someone took his letters and began to false prophesy about it, began to confuse this church, and basically told them the rapture has already happened. You missed it. You've been left behind. You missed it. You were no good. You weren't good enough. You didn't do it. You didn't make it. So then they, they're in a panic. So in 2 Thessalonians, he goes back into saying, whoa, 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 let me just help you guys. Let me just tell you right now. You did not miss nothing. Let me just explain to you, and let me just give you a little bit of hope. You need to know that the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the earth, but there will be a man, and he will be an Antichrist, and he will set himself up in the temple. He will desolate the temple. He will set himself up. That's how you'll know that something has already happened. That ain't happened. Don't worry about it. And then he teaches them what they should be concerned about, what they should be engaged with. Are you with me? Say yes. So let's look at the three big life lessons that First and Second Thessalonians, what he's trying to teach them. He's not trying to get into, the was it premillennial, postmillennial? He's not doing all that. He's just trying to help Christians who are being persecuted to keep their faith. Are you with me? Say yes. So let's see the life lessons that he gives. And we'll start with the first life lessons. And that is, his first one is, be alert and self-control. First Thessalonians 5, verse 1 through 6. He says, now brothers, of the night, well, we don't need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. They will, uh, they will not escape. But you, brothers, everybody say me. me. Come on, you, say me. me. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness. So that this day should surprise you like a thief. It's not going to surprise you and me. Why? Because we're living, waiting for the Lord. It's going to surprise everybody else. Like, what? Oh, man, I should have served Jesus. It'll come like a thief in the night, he says. He says, and so, verse 6, so then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us, there it is, let us what? Be alert and self-control. Skip verse 7 to verse 8 for sake of time. But since we belong to the day, let us, there it is again, be what? Self-control. Putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So look what he says, his first big life lesson. These things are going to happen. I know you're being persecuted. And, and listen, it, 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 he'll come like a thief in the night. But, but it'll, that'll be because those other people didn't serve God. But for you, you know what you and I should be doing? We should be alert and self-control. And he uses those ver- ver- words very specifically. Alert. Can I just say this to you, Christian? You need to be alert. There is wickedness in this earth. And can I just help you? You are a foolish parent. To let your kid, your nine-year-old, have a cell phone with free access to anything on the internet they could have. You do not understand how wicked the earth is today. You need to be alert. You need to wake up. 
You need, listen, I, you, if you're married, you need to understand that your spouse is being tended by every wickedness out there. You need to be alert to that. You need to be people of prayer. You need to be people of community. You need to be in the body of Christ praying and seeking God. Why? We need to be alert to what's going on around us and not stick our head in the sand and say, well, he'll take us away one day. You and I need to be alert. That's what he's telling. Be alert. Wake up. Pay attention. I picture, I picture those uh, security guys that, that go with the president. You ever watch those guys? They are high strung, man. You know, you just know, and anybody yell bomb or gun, somebody's going to die. Those dudes are alert. And that's kind of the imagery there. And then he moves on, he says, and self-control. Now, who's he talking to? He's talking to Thessalonians. It's the first book that he wrote. He's talking to them, and he's trying to encourage them about what? He's trying to encourage them not to give up, though they're being persecuted. They're taking their kids, and they're putting them in jail. People are showing up at their small group. They don't know if they're spies, if they actually want Jesus. So he's telling them, be self-controlled. He's not telling them, be, he's not talking about perversion. He's not talking about, you know, money or stealing. What's he talking about? Be self-controlled in reference to what? In reference to injustice. Because they're experiencing a lot of injustice. It's not fair what's happening to them. It's not right. Just because they have a different belief system uh, 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 than, than their neighbor. Just because they, don't, they believe that Jesus did fulfill. He was the Messiah. And even though their Jewish friends say, no, 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 no. He wasn't the Messiah. He was a fake. Just because they believe that, they're being persecuted and misappropriated. And, 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 and I just want to point out to you guys about injustice. When it comes to injustice, we should handle injustice the way Jesus did. Let's think that through for a little bit. They beat him. They crucified him. They lied about him. How did Jesus handle injustice? The first thing that he did was on the cross he said, forgive them for they know not what they do. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't have done that. I'd have been like, oh no, zap, fried right there. They'd have melted, blah, 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 blah. But Jesus didn't do that. How did he handle injustice? He cried out like the word of God says, Lord, and forgive them for they know not what they do. What's the Bible say? Pray for those who despitefully use you and abandon you mistreat you. Pray, pray for your enemy. Do good to those who do evil to you. See, what we've got right now in the earth is a lot of injustice, and it's unbelievable how Christians are responding to injustice. It ain't like Jesus. We need to respond the way Jesus responded. He didn't riot. He didn't get out there riot. In fact, when they came to get him in the garden with his disciples, they came with clubs and swords. And Jesus said, whoa, 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 whoa. Why do you come to us like this? We're not rioting against you. We're, we're, not, we're not attacking you. We, we, we'll come freely. Are you Jesus? Yes, I'll come with you freely. In fact, when he stood in front of Pilate, Pilate said to him, he said, ha ha. He said, all you got to do is say this. He says, I have the ability to let you go. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't take my life. I give my life freely. So friend, you got to understand when it comes to injustice, we should handle injustice the way Jesus did with self-control. With self-control. Why did Jesus not strike back? Why did Jesus not belay, uh, belittle and, and humiliate those who were full of injustice? Why didn't he point out to them how wicked they were and all these kind of things? Why? Because he was God. Because he understood who he was. He knew that at the end of it all, he was going to raise from the dead. Friend, can I tell you something? At the end of it all, you will raise from the dead. At the end of it all, you'll spend eternity with Jesus in heaven forever and ever and ever. And Jesus understood that you don't win a fight with a fight. You win a fight with love. You take over bitterness and wickedness by showing kindness and goodness. And that threw the devil off because the devil thought he was going to get in some kind of fixed fight match with Jesus. And he said, no, nah, I just lay down my life. It's hard to fight with a dead person. And we're supposed to be dead to self, alive to Christ. You keep getting in these spats online with people who are ignorant and trying to prove them their ignorance. That's the wrong way to handle injustice. In fact, here's my little statement for you. You can write this down, tweet it. Injustice is not a license for believers to sin. We should love the unlovable. Come on now. We should have forgiveness to those who we deem don't deserve forgiveness. This is how Jesus lived. When, G when Paul is telling them, be alert and self-control. You know what he's saying? I know you want to punch them in the face. I know you want to slice their throat open. I, I know that they have done you dirty, he says, but be self-control. Be self-control. Be alert to the wickedness that's around you.
but self-control in how you respond to it. And I see so many Christians responding not like Jesus did. You and I have to respond the way Jesus did. And we cannot sin against our neighbor, against our brother. We have to love to the place of death and pain and suffering. We have to forgive. That doesn't mean we don't, we don't stand up for ourselves. That just simply means that we love the way Jesus did and we do it the way Jesus did it. Are you with me? Say yes. So the first thing he teaches them, listen, it's coming. It's getting worse. It's going to happen. But be alert and self-control. Here's the second big life lesson in the, in the passages here in Thessalonians. And that is, number two, have confidence in the relationship. Have confidence in the relationship. Have confidence in the relationship. Paul qualifies this by presenting two truths about the relationship. He, he presents two tr- truths. He says, listen, you need to have confidence that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. You've got to have confidence in that relationship. And he qualifies it by giving two teachings on that. First one, he says that God will not pour out his wrath, as pre-mentioned. And so look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that... Whether we are awake or asleep, whether we've died or we're still on the earth awake, we may live together with him. So, so let me, let me, some of you still don't get this doctrine. Uh, a friend of mine, we were talking about this during the service. Um, and that is some of you still believe that you have to work for your salvation. You have to work for your forgiveness. And you don't understand how, um, what Jesus appropriated for us on the cross. So let me kind of give you a mental picture. So he's saying, look, God will not pour out his wrath on us because he's already poured it out on Christ. So, so what you have to understand is when you and I sin, there's a payment for that sin that has to be qualified. Someone has to pay for it. Back in the Old Testament times, the way God made them pay for it was he made them purchase animals that were innocent and spotless. And, 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 and once a year, a couple times a year, they would have to come and slit those poor innocent animals' throat, bleed them out, and let that blood represent the forgiveness that God's willing to, the covering, the paying for the sin that they've committed throughout the year. And it was an imagery that God gave because he wanted them to understand he's going to be gracious but they have to actually make a step towards repentance by doing this. And then when God said, okay, enough of all that, I'm going to forgive humanity once and for all by sending the sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ. Now let me kind of put this in perspective for you. My mom and I were talking about this. My mom's younger brother was my, my uncle Jeff. My uncle Jeff at 15 years old um, snuck out of my grandmother's house and took her car. 15 years old, stole her car in the night. A group of girls were involved in that. And they went out. They went out partying and got drunk. Someone helped them get alcohol, and they got blasted out of their mind. And somewhere early in the morning, over the railroad tracks in our city, my uncle flew over those railroad tracks and hit a car. And the multiple kids in the car, and one of the kids died. One of those kids died. Drunken stupor. It was my grandmother's car. My uncle had taken the keys. My uncle was driving, they thought. Couldn't prove it because they found him in the back seat at the scene. But a girl had died. The parents of that child, that 15-year-old girl who died, they wanted justice. And they deserved justice. Someone had killed their child. My uncle was the one to blame. Purpose? Accident? He didn't wake up that morning and say, I'm going to kill somebody. He didn't cognizantly decide to do that. But they put him in jail for a number of years as a 15-year-old because he killed someone. He had to pay for what he did. Are you with me? He had to pay for it. Now imagine at sentencing... As he's sentencing, the judge is sitting there about to sentence my uncle that the judge's son steps up and goes, Dad, Dad, I'll pay for it. Send me instead. I'll go. The the response by my uncle should be, what? I did it. I have to pay for it. I didn't mean to do it. It was a horrible decision. I didn't wake up deciding to hurt somebody, but I did. And so I must pay for it. But you're going to pay for it instead. And the loyalty that should happen because of that interaction is what we as Christians are supposed to live in. Because, friend, you have sinned. I have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus came and he paid for that. So when the Father looks at us, he sees the payment in full. And there's not another payment to be made. He sees it in full. So what Paul is telling them is to have confidence in the relationship. He will pour out his wrath, but not on you and not on me. Because why? Because we have already been paid for. Because we have surrendered ourselves to Jesus Christ and said, you are my Lord. And by faith, I surrender myself. I come under your covering. I come under your paid in full bill. It has all been paid in full for me. And so there's a, yeah, there's a moment 
There's a moment where God says, all right, all you other suckers who did not accept my son Jesus, it is time to give an account. And he will pour out his wrath on the earth. And what he's telling them is like, it will, that will happen, but not to you. Because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Because it's been paid in full. He won't pour out his wrath on you. That's why I call myself pre-wrath. I don't really care. As a result of the, I have a relationship with the living God. I am so confident in our relationship. I'm not confident in me. I'm an idiot. I'm confident in him. That he's big enough to love me in spite of my stupidity. In spite of my sinfulness. Are you with me? And I just, I'm just smart enough to say, I'm going to stay with Jesus. I'm going to stay with Jesus. I'm going to stay with Jesus. I'm going to just stay with Jesus. I ain't got it all figured out. I mess it up a lot, but I'm going to stay with Jesus. I'm just going to stay with Jesus. And what's going to happen on that day, whether, and so that's why I don't need to argue pro, pre-rab, post-rab, all this kind of stuff. It don't really matter. I'll tell you right now, it ain't going to happen to me because I have confidence in the relationship. Are you with me? Here's a second qualifying point that Paul makes to him about why you need to have confidence in the relationship. Look at this next piece, and that is because the Holy Spirit is holding back the Antichrist. The Holy Spirit's holding back the power of the Antichrist. Now, now let me break this down so you can understand it. When you became a Christian, who came and lived inside of you? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit lives and abides in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. The Holy Spirit is what's on the earth today, keeping the powers of darkness from taking over, keeping us from being in complete anarchy. But there will be a day when the Holy Spirit is gone. He'll be extracted out off the planet and full anarchy. And that's where most people argue that's going to be during that tribulation time. That's when it's going to happen. And so what Paul is saying, he says, listen, he listen well, let me read it to you in, in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 7 through 8. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth. There ain't no battle. It's over. And destroy by the splendor of his coming. So here, here, here's the understanding. What Paul is saying, listen, you have an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit who lives and abides in you. You're going to be okay. Because when he goes, you goes. It can't, no wickedness on this planet can actually harm you to that kind of level. Yes, yes, demonic forces try to mess with us. Yes, there are difficulties that happen in this life. But at the end of the day, our salvation is secure. Because why? Because we've been stamped with the Holy Spirit. Our salvation, our protection is secure. No matter how much wickedness, say, but it, but I lost a child. That's okay. Look, I know that's painful, and I'm sorry that you went through that. But at the end of the day, you're secure in your salvation. The Holy Spirit has been, you've been stamped with the Holy Spirit. And you ain't going nowhere, girlfriend. You ain't going nowhere, go, uh, boyfriend, until Jesus says it's so. And the Spirit of the Lord will move himself in that moment. Then lawlessness will happen. But until that point... We are protected by the Holy Spirit. He is holding back the darkness. That's why it's foolish for you not to learn how to develop a relationship with the Holy Spirit. That's why here in this church, we're teaching you how to stay in step with the Holy Spirit, how to actually use the gifts. The gifts didn't go away with the apostles. What it took to birth the church, we need to sustain the church. We need miracles. We need words of knowledge and words of wisdom. We don't need to misappropriate them in a fleshly, uh, you know, all about me kind of way. I'm tired of that mess. But, Lord, I need, I need people to walk up and say, man, Pastor, I was praying. I felt like God said this. Oh, that's what I've been praying about. That's an answer. Yes, God. We need that. We've got to have that relationship with the Holy Spirit. So he gives us confidence. He says, listen, confidence in that relationship. I, I, listen, I would, I, it'd be miserable if I didn't have confidence in the relationship that I'm in with Jesus Christ. And some of you are in that space. You try to come to church. You're kind of doing the little, you know, go to service kind of thing. And that's, thank you for that. But at the end of the day, the goal is for you to have a real relationship with the real God. That's the goal. Some of you had a relationship back when you were kids. And you didn't really understand it that much. It was kind of mom and dad's relationship. So you kind of connected to the relationship because it was mom and dad's relationship. But for now, you and I have to have our own relationship. You, how sad for you to walk out of this place today not knowing if he returned today if you'd be ready. I'm, listen, bring it on. That's why I don't have any fear. Post-trip, pre-trip, we're going to go through wrath. We I mean, we're going to go through tribulation. Great. That's fine. I don't, you say that's not God's wrath. That's just bad stuff that's going to happen. I'm ready for it. Why? Because I have a secure relationship with the living God. Do you? How shameful for you not to have that. He's offered it. A loving relationship. And so he's telling the Thessalonians, hey, be secure in the relationship. 
You asked him into your life, he came in, you're protected, you're safe. Trust the relationship. I can't imagine if I was worried that my little wife had other men on the side that she was running around with. I can't imagine that insecurity. I can't imagine that fear. That I, I, I just can't imagine it because we're faithful to one another. And some of you bring that insecurity into your relationship with Jesus because things that have happened to you. But I want you to know, he's faithful. He's faithful when no one else has ever been faithful to you in your life. He is fa- his ways are higher than our ways. You say, well, how can he be faithful to me when I'm not faithful to him? Because he's God. That's what makes him God and us not God. Are you with me? And his love for us is that he says, you know what? I know you love me and I love you. And you've been real disobedient. So don't do that no more. All right, come here, baby. That's the relationship and what it can look like. Here's the third big teaching that Paul had here for the Thessalonians. And that is, last one, number three, hold on to hope. Hold on to hope. He actually kind of solidifies that in one of the last chapters in his second book to him. His second letter, excuse me, verse 16 of chapter 2. He says, in a prayer, he says, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself, himself, and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and work. He's saying, listen, God started the hope in you, and may he continue to encourage the hope inside of you. Can I tell you something? Fear is constantly trying to steal our hope. There is a spirit of the Antichrist that's constantly trying to steal your hope. Because why? Because hope is the starter for the engine of faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Right? So faith in Jesus, trust in Jesus, trusting in him, actually all starts... It all starts with hope. And I can't tell you how many Christians I meet that have lost hope. Hope that the marriage can work. Hope that it's worth all the effort trying to serve God. Hope. They just lost hope that they'll ever get healed. They've lost hope as to whether or not this will ever be okay. They've lost hope. Can I tell you something? That's because they've lost relationship. If you've lost hope in an area, it's because you don't have relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to the level you need it. I'll give you a great example. Um, the other day, I got to, not so long ago, I got to play with a professional golfer. I'm a terrible golfer. But while we were playing, he's like, Adam, you're not that bad. You've got some good things. You've got some good pieces in there. I was like, okay. He goes, just tweak this right here. And I tweaked it, and it was like, cow. I was like, oh, I'm going on tour. I'm going on tour. I'm going pro. The next day, he wasn't there. Uh, the next week, I went out to play. He wasn't there. I was so bad. I was like, I quit. I hate this game. I hate it. But while I was with the professional, come on, somebody. While I was with the expert, the expert could give me hope where I lacked hope and confidence because I was with the expert who said, oh, that ain't nothing. Like, just do this right here. That's all I got. Wow, that works. I know. I try to tell you. But when I try to do it by myself, I'm trying to serve God. I'm just can't serve God. Forget it. Throw the clubs in the water. <laughs> you know? Why? Because I need the expert there encouraging. That's what he's saying. Hold on to hope. Hold on to hope. Hold on to hope. Listen, don't quit. Don't quit God. God listen, he's telling these guys who are being persecuted. I know they're trying to kill you. I know you never know if they're going to take all your possessions away because you're a believer in Jesus Christ. He says, but hold on to hope. Why? Because there's a day coming. Come on, somebody. Well, all of this will be set right. All of this will be put in perspective. Hold on to hope. Listen to me. You hold on to hope. That child's going to come back to Jesus. You hold on to that hope. Why? Because you raised them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and when they're old, they will not depart. You hold on to hope. You hold on to the hope that I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging for bread. I don't know how you're going to get me through this, God. I don't know how I'm going to keep my house from getting taken away from me, but I'm holding on to you. I'm holding on to hope. I'm holding on to hope that you are good. And even if they do take my house away, you got something better in store. Why? Because I'm holding on to you. The hope. The hope that seems to be stolen all the time. And that's what he's telling them. Don't let, don't let your hope be taken away from you. God started by putting hope in you, and he will continue to grow it and increase it. Are you with me? Stand with me all across the room. I want to take a moment. I want to minister to you. If you could, I'd like to pray with you. I want you just to close your eyes right where you're at. And I do that not because we send little elves around to steal stuff out of your purses, but because I want you to have, a, I want you to have an intimate moment with the Lord. And that's kind of hard to do in a crowd of people. 
And so I promise you we'll be trustworthy and not let anybody mess with you while you got your eyes closed. But I want you just to have a moment with the Lord. And first I want to start with, if you've lost hope, I need you now to ask God to encourage it. Maybe you've lost hope that you can ever overcome that sin habit. You're like, you've given up. You look, you, you've gotten five, you know, AA chips. You, 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 you've gotten, you know, 16, you know, accountability partners. And you just, you, you just lost hope. I want you to ask the Lord to encourage you and, and empower you with hope again. As you, as you sit here with your head bowed and your eye closed, if you've lost hope, God wants to encourage your hope again. He wants to breathe life into that hope. He wants to strengthen you and give you hope that you've lost throughout the difficulties of these last few years. Father, I pray right now in Jesus' name for those who feel like they've lost hope. Lord, I ask you right now, Lord God, that you would do something supernatural in each and every one of them. God, only you can bring hope to us. Only you, oh God, can make sense to the things that make no sense. We need you in this moment like we've never needed you before. God, it is a difficult season in which we live. Lord, it's hard to believe in our country sometimes, in our leadership sometimes. It's hard to believe in those in authority, God. So we need hope again. We need to believe that you're at work, that righteousness is in work in the midst of injustice. Lord, we will respond the way you responded. Lord God, we will act the way you wanted us to act. I want to give a call and a prayer moment for any of you that might say, you know what, Pastor, I don't have good self-control right now. Man, I find myself just getting ticked off at everybody. I'm not acting the way Jesus acted. I don't bless those who curse me. I curse those who curse me. I don't pray for those who, who make me an enemy. I don't even want to be their enemy, but they make me an enemy, and I don't, I don't pray for them. I've lost self-control. I've lost confidence that God can do miracles if I'll just stay self-controlled. I want you here and now just to ask the Lord to help you. I want you to repent. Say, Lord, forgive me. Help me. Strengthen me. Father, in the name of Jesus. Lord, we ask that the church would have self-control, that we'd be alert and self-control in this moment. That we wouldn't fight the flesh with the flesh. The Lord God, that we wouldn't fight fire with fire. And we wouldn't fight hate with hate. But, Lord God, that you would actually help us to be self-controlled, to give love in the midst of hate, to give forgiveness in the midst of injustice to give love and care and concern for those who have no love and care and concern for anybody else. God, I thank you right now that we will be self-controlled. Lord, in the, in the season of the end times, you said, listen, you gotta stay self-controlled, guys. It's already started. Birth pains are happening. God, I thank you right now, 2,000 years later, that we're gonna stay self-controlled in the midst of end time type situations. Now, as you keep your head bowed and your eye closed, I'm going to give a call for those of you that say, Pastor, when you were talking about confidence in the relationship, i got to be honest, I don't have confidence in Jesus. I've lost the relationship. I, I don't even know if I died today if I'd go to heaven. Maybe you'd say, Pastor, I'll be honest with you. I used to know Jesus. We used to have a relationship, but life happened. I walked away. Just stuff happened. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know what to do. Friend, i got such good news for you. Oh, I have such good news for you. That confidence that I have in that relationship is not based on me being good. It's not based on me being sinless. It's based on him being perfect. And what he said he would do, and he said it like this, if you will, if you will ask, you'll receive. If you'll confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will forgive you and I'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's what he said. So my confidence is not in my ability to be good. My confidence is in what he said he was and he would do. My confidence is what he paid for 2,000 years ago, not what I paid for. So today, if you have no confidence in the relationship, it's time to make a change. I'd like to pray with you. I'd like to lead you into repentance with him. I'd like to get you reconnected with the living God. I've already told you how. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that he is the Christ. That'll start that relationship up and then what'll happen is you'll begin to grow in that relationship. And sometimes it'll be those moments, you know, where it's, where it's hard and difficult and you don't really understand the Lord. You'll break through that and get deeper and deeper. So today with every head bowed and every eye closed, you say, Pastor, that's me. I don't have a real relationship with the living God. 
but I want more. I'd like to pray with you if that's you. I'm not going to have you come forward. I'm not going to try to spotlight you, but I do need you to acknowledge it to yourself and to the Lord by lifting your hand right now and saying, Pastor, that's me. I'm ready to serve God. I need Jesus in my life. I want to start a relationship. If that's you, quickly lift your hand. I want to pray with you across the room. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for your honesty. Put it back down. No one's looking around. It's just me, you. Okay. Just me, you, and heaven. Thank you. God bless you. I see your hand as well. Give you about two more seconds. I don't want to pull and tug. I just don't want you to miss it because you're a little bit insecure. This is your moment. Quickly respond to your God who's loving you and reaching out to you. One more second. Anyone else? Pastor, that's me. Okay. God bless you. Thank you. I'm going to lead you in a prayer, a prayer of repentance. Jesus paid for all this. This is not about you having to give money to the church or crawl on your knees and beg for forgiveness. He paid for it all. And today, we're going to surrender ourselves to his love. And so I want everyone in the audience to pray out loud with those who lifted their hand. And those who lifted your hand, I want you to mean this with all of your heart. Say it like this. Say, Jesus, today I admit I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that I've sinned against you. But today, I repent. I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me of my sins. I receive your grace. I receive your mercy. I humble myself and I declare, Jesus is my Lord. I no longer want to rule my life, but I surrender myself to Jesus Christ. I ask you now, Write my name in your book of life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I belong to you, and I will serve you all of my days in Jesus' name. Keep your head bowed for just a moment. I want to pray over you. Father, I pray for every man and woman who lifted their hand, who prayed that prayer from the depths of their heart, who meant that from every fiber of their being. I pray right now they would feel your peace. Peace. Don't have to be worried about the end. Don't have to worry about the snatching away, because they're yours. And they have full access to the benefits of sonship and daughtership. Jesus, I pray right now for the joy. The Bible calls it the joy of our salvation. The joy of knowing, you know what? (laughs) I don't know what to do with this crazy life, but I know the one. And he is my best friend. Jesus, I pray right now for a fresh joy in their salvation. And Daddy, I ask you now, that Lord God, that as they leave this place today, and they ponder the words that were spoken, what you were talking to them in their heart, that they would remember that they are now sons and daughters of the light. And that, Lord God, they don't have to be worried about what is to come because, Lord, they can have confidence in the relationship they have with you. We praise you. We thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said amen and amen.